Welcome to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, and more. I'm your host, Jay. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you a story of a charming and ambitious blonde who liked to drive flashy vehicles and dress in the newest styles. In the mid-50s, Anjets was a popular business in the town of Macon, Georgia, a southern diner whose customers ranged from judges, attorneys, businessmen, and civic leaders. The owner, Anjet Lyles, was well known among the community. Her warm, charming, and inviting personality made her business a favorite among the locals, and her good looks had her white-collar male patrons coming back for more. Anjet always welcomed her customers with hugs, warm conversations, and good food. However, the glamorous platinum-hair beauty would soon be known for serving up so much more than just southern comfort kitchen food, as those around her were mysteriously dying. Murder was on the menu. This is Blood, Bodies, and Bones, Blonde Ambition, Black Magic, and Bodies. In 1925, in the town of Macon, Georgia, Anjette was born to Jetta Watkins and William Donovan. One of three children and the only daughter, Anjette was an unremarkable student. With her good looks and charming personality, she was easily able to manipulate and bend people to her will, getting whatever she wanted in the end. In 1947, 22-year-old Anjette married Ben Lyles Jr., who, like most of his male peers, had fought in World War II. During his time in the army, he had developed rheumatic fever, which affected his heart. While at a veterans hospital in Dublin, Georgia, he was declared disabled and would end up receiving a pension. Ben Jr. had returned home and he and his mother, Julia, owned and ran Lyles, a local diner that had been in the family for years and was located on Mulberry Street in downtown Macon. Ben Jr. and Anjette wasted no time settling down and started their family right away. And by 1948, they had welcomed their first daughter, Marcia. Shortly after, Ben began staying out late, drinking and gambling. So, Anjette went to work at Lyle's alongside her mother-in-law, Julia. Although the restaurant was managed and ran by the mother and son duo, Anjette rapidly learned the ropes. Along with her charm, Anjette's striking good looks and buxom figure made her popular among the male customers which had them returning more often. Lyles would quickly become a popular local spot where you could stop and enjoy a great meal with friendly conversation and warm southern hospitality. As Anjette often brought her daughter Marsha into the restaurant while she worked, the young girl would soon become popular among the staff. Both Anjette and Ben soon welcomed their second daughter, Carla, in May of 1951. With the business thriving, the couple seemed to have it all as things were going well for them. However, all would not remain that way for too long. After the birth of their second child, Ben's gambling worsened and his health began to deteriorate. In June 1951, without consulting his wife, Ben sold the family business for just $2,500, a move that would cause stress between the couple and leave Anjette furious and unable to forgive her husband for such a hasty decision. In addition to the loss of the family restaurant, Ben's disability pension was reduced by 90% as the Veterans Administration decided that he was fit to work. The lack of income forced the young mother of two to beg relatives for money and use clothes for her children just to try and survive. By December 1951, the family's fortune turned darker as Ben started to become ill. However, this wasn't a recurrence of his rheumatic fever. Along with the nausea, fatigue, and stomach pain he was suffering from, Ben experienced nosebleeds and convulsions. Doctors were not able to determine what was the cause of these symptoms, 
and so they decided to admit him to Macon Hospital. Ben would slip into a coma, and the following month, on January 25, 1951, he passed away, his death certificate listing the cause as encephalitis. Forced to move from the apartment she shared with her late husband, and Jet was widowed with two young children and now homeless. She moved in with her parents and took a job as a waitress. Over the next few years, the young mother worked hard and saved as much money as she could. And in April 1955, she was finally able to buy back the restaurant that was sold by her husband with the savings she had. Although she hired her mother-in-law and some of the original staff, she would rename the restaurant Ann Jet's. Attracting locals to the diner by serving the typical southern fare, and Jet's friendliness and outgoing personality did the rest. It wouldn't be long before the business was thriving again, attracting local clientele ranging from judges, attorneys, businessmen, and civic leaders. And Jet's was the most popular restaurant in town. The driven and determined five foot six southern restaurateur was known to push the boundaries of acceptable behavior in her small town. She would often be found driving around in flashy cars and always dressed in the newest styles. Combined with her striking good looks and flirtatious manner, and Jet soon gained a reputation with the locals in town. Although there was no solid proof, Anjet's name was often rumored to be linked to various men within the community. By late spring of 1955, Anjet began dating Joe Gabbert, a Korean War veteran and pilot for Capital Airways, whom she had met in her restaurant. As with her late husband Ben, she and Joe wasted no time. After accompanying him on a trip to Carlsbad, New Mexico, the couple married on June 24, 1955. Upon their return, they surprised family and friends with the news of their wedding, and Joe moved into the Donovan home in Macon. In October 1955, after just a few short months of wedded bliss, Joe was scheduled for minor surgery on his wrist at Parkview Hospital. The day after his surgery, while still in hospital, Joe developed a painful rash over his whole body, accompanied with a spiked fever. Joe's condition eventually improved. However, it wouldn't be long before he was back in hospital again, unable to keep any food down without getting nauseous and vomiting liquids. Joe also became increasingly irrational, with doctors not being able to determine the cause of his illness and the symptoms not subsiding, Joe was moved to the Veterans Hospital in Dublin, Georgia, where his kidneys ended up failing. On December 2nd, 1955, the 26-year-old passed away. Doctors wanted to perform an autopsy on Joe, and although Anjet refused, they proceeded anyway. However, doctors would not find any answers as the autopsy did not reveal anything out of the ordinary. Although Anjet was now widowed for a second time, she didn't seem to grieve for the loss of her husband. In fact, she was eager to tell people how mean and cruel he was to her, and she questioned why she was married to him. Soon after his passing, Anjet changed her last name back to Lyles and started dating Joe's former boss, Bob Franks, which sparked disapproval and gossip among some of the residents in Macon. Now the recipient of her late husband's life insurance, Anjet purchased a new car and home. After settling into the new home, Anjet invited her first husband's mother, Julia Lyles, to move in with her and the children. Julia accepted the offer, as she was alone and wanted to be closer to her grandchildren. With her mother-in-law now living in the new home, it wasn't long before Anjet found a bank book belonging to Julia, which revealed that the grandmother possessed nearly $11,000 in savings. 
Following the discovery, Anjette began insisting that Julia make a will. However, Julia refused to get one. In addition to her need for presenting a certain image, Anjette was also a superstitious woman, to say the very least. The successful restaurateur would often visit fortune tellers and root doctors. Some of her staff at the restaurant frequently found the young mother burning candles in the kitchen and speaking to the flames. Anjette would also cast her own spells, a practice where she often pressured her mother-in-law and her maid, Carmen Howard, to participate in the ceremonies. In August 1957, tragedy would occur yet again as Julia became ill and was admitted to hospital. During her time there, Anjette often stayed with and cared for her mother-in-law, feeding her some of Julia's favorite foods that she brought from her restaurant. Julia suffered from edemia and nausea, but the doctors were not able to determine the cause of her symptoms, and after a months-long stay in hospital, she died on September 29, 1957. A week after Julia was laid to rest beside her husband and son, Anjette provided a will that she claimed was Julia's. The will, which would be probated shortly after its discovery, left much of the estate to Anjette and her two daughters. It wouldn't be long before tragedy would strike the seemingly cursed Lyle family again. In March 1958, Anjette's nine-year-old daughter Marcia took sick. Feeling listless and having developed a bad cough, Marcia also had an extremely high fever of 106 degrees. The young child was immediately admitted to the hospital on doctor's orders. Anjette expressed concern to the doctors that her child was going to die. While in hospital, Marcia's health had began to improve for a brief time. However, it then rapidly declined. She contracted general edemia, and her kidneys began failing. Along with the abnormal forceful vomiting and nasal and oral bleeding she was suffering from, Marcia also suffered from hallucinations. She complained that bugs were crawling across her skin, beasts were coming after her, and worms were crawling out of her fingers. The hallucinations were so extreme that Marcia would clutch and cling to anyone standing next to her, begging for them to protect her. In a town just 40 minutes south of Macon, Georgia, Julia's sister, Nora Bagley, received an anonymous letter in the mail that read, Please come at once. She's receiving the same dose as the others. Concerned over the message in the letter, Nora brought it to various authorities, However, they discounted its validity. Although the letter reached its attended recipient, it was too late for young Marcia, who died on April 5, 1958. Just two hours after her death, Dr. Leonard Campbell, a pathologist and Bibb County medical examiner, performed a gross material autopsy on Marcia, which consisted of a visual inspection of her tissue. The results, however, revealed nothing abnormal. With the death of her eldest daughter, and Jet was the talk of the town yet again, but this time it wasn't for her flashy cars or beautiful good looks. The question on everyone's mind was whether she had anything to do with the deaths of her four family members. The same authorities that first dismissed the letter Julia's sister received now reconsidered its contents, and the letter was passed to the coroner of Bibb County before Marcia's funeral. The coroner contacted Dr. Campbell, and a second autopsy was performed. Tissue was removed from Marcia's kidneys, and, along with parts of her hair and two bottles of tarot ant poison, the items were sent to the state crime lab in Atlanta for the purpose of ascertaining the existence of poison. 
Larry Howard, the lab's deputy director, who was also an expert in poisons, found traces of arsenic in the tissue sample. It was determined that Marcia was poisoned. A few days later, Anjette visited Dr. Campbell's office to discuss her daughter's death, and several follow-up visits were made. It was during one of these visits that Anjette was informed of the anonymous letter accusing her of poisoning her child and the second autopsy that was performed. Although no specific poison was mentioned during their conversation, it was reported that Anjette did not react to this news. In fact, the following day, Anjette made a call to Dr. Campbell's office, letting him know that something had occurred and that she would be bringing in her daughter Carla to explain it to him. Later, Anjette visited his office, bringing not only Carla with her, but two bottles of taro ant poisoning in a paper bag. She had Carla tell him a story about playing doctor with two neighborhood children and the two bottles of ant poison. Hearing this, Dr. Campbell insisted that Anjette contact the mother of the two twins and let them know of this incident. So, Anjette picked up his telephone book, looked up the number, and rang the household. She proceeded to tell the individual who picked up the other line that she was in the doctor's office and feared that their twins had come in contact with some arsenic poison. During a later conversation with Dr. Campbell, Anjette informed him that she had a letter from Julia that was addressed to herself. The letter cleared her of being responsible for the death of Ben Lyles Jr. and for the approaching death of Julia herself. This letter revealed how Julia took full responsibility for her son's death and begged forgiveness for the wrong that she had done to Anjette. By now, police had already opened an investigation into the nine-year-old's death, interviewing Anjette's employees, friends, and family members. The bodies of her two late husbands and late mother-in-law were exhumed for examination. Ben Jr., Joe, and Julia were all found to have arsenic in their system. This was detectable as arsenic is a metalloid, meaning that it is somewhere between a metal and non-metal, and is able to be detected in the body long after death. On May 6, 1958, just a month after Marcia's death, police arrested Anjette, who at the time was in hospital for an inflamed varicose vein. When authorities performed a search of her home, not only did they find several jars of ant poisoning, which contained high levels of arsenic, but they also found pictures of Anjette's current boyfriend, books on voodoo, numerous candles, powders, roots, and written spells. The news that the 32-year-old mother of two was charged with the murder of her two late husbands, mother-in-law, and nine-year-old daughter stunned local residents. Once news outlets picked up the story, it was sensationalized not only in Macon, but across the state of Georgia, and was further amplified with the discovery of black magic paraphernalia in her home. Some newspapers even labeled the restaurateur as the glamorous platinum-haired widow. Unable to walk and in a wheelchair due to her hospitalization, Anjette was arraigned on four counts of murder. Just five months later, on October 6, 1958, the trial began and became the most publicized and talked about criminal trial in Macon, Georgia in the 20th century. Although she was only indicted for the trial for the murder of her daughter, the arraignment allowed prosecutors to introduce evidence that related to the deaths of Ben Jr., Joe, and Julia. This is usually not allowed unless the evidence of the other crimes show motive, plan, or scheme for the crime for which the defendant is on trial. During her trial, the deaths of all four victims were shown to be connected in at least the following ten ways. 
Each victim had a close relationship with Anjet. Each victim died of a unique cause, arsenic poisoning. Each died of multiple doses that built up to a lethal level. Anjet was the only individual who was in close personal attendance to the victims. Anjet displayed little or no grief over the death of each victim. Anjet had collected a substantial amount of money as a result of the deaths. Each of the victims were lavishly buried by Anjet. The victims were all carried to the same hospital where they were attended by Anjet. Anjet expressed intense dislike for each victim, either before or after their death. And Anjet was overheard predicting the death of each victim, with the exception of her first husband. The evidence that Anjet had killed all four victims, while circumstantial, was compelling enough when viewed altogether. There was a vast amount of evidence that all four victims had died from arsenic poisoning given in doses over a period of time. Ant poisoning containing arsenic was even found in Anjet's bedroom. Prosecutors detailed to the court and jury that, on occasion, employees of Anjet's restaurant heard her respond to her daughter's annoying behavior by screaming at her, calling her a son of a bitch, and threatening or swearing to kill her. Anjet would take food and drink to the victims while they were in hospital. However, before giving the drink to them, several witnesses saw her disappear into the restroom for a few minutes, taking both the drink and her purse with her. When her daughter was in hospital, crying in fear from hallucination-induced terror, seeing snakes and thinking that bugs were crawling out from her fingers, Anjet made no attempt to try and comfort her child, but instead chose to laugh at her. Two weeks prior to Marcia's death, doctors remarked how the young girl would recover. Hearing this news, Anjet decided to order a coffin for her daughter. Also, two weeks before Marcia's death, Anjet remarked, well, she won't be using these anymore, packing up her daughter's personal belongings in the hospital room, disposing of the flowers, and placing the suitcases in the hall. During the trial, Anjet's affinity for all things magic and occult was explored. Everything from the powders, roots, potions, and voodoo paraphernalia that she kept, to burning candles and speaking to them, was detailed in the court. Burning different color candles served different purposes for Anjet. Orange was to keep people from gossiping about you. Green was for good luck or money. White for peace. Red for love. And black candles were burned when you wanted someone to die. It was reported that when witnesses and spectators in the courtroom would burst into tears during parts of the trial, especially during testimony concerning the painful death of her daughter, Anjet sat there emotionless, almost uninterested that others were upset and weeping over the pain Marcia had suffered. It was revealed during trial that Anjet received close to $50,000 in life insurance money from the deaths of her four family members. The prosecutors called to the stand 51 witnesses, and also presented evidence of forged documents, including insurance documents and bank statements signed by Anjet, all of which went to further prove motive for the murders. Just seven days after the trial started, it was over. Jury members deliberated for only an hour and a half and found Anjet guilty. The judge sentenced her to death in the electric chair. This would be the first for the state of Georgia, as there had never been an execution of a white woman prior. On July 8, 1959, 
the Georgia Supreme Court affirmed Anjet's sentence. The court observed that the trial evidence, quote, shows nothing short of a deliberate, premeditated, well-concocted plan and scheme to murder an innocent child for no cause except to satisfy Anjet's desire for money. Eventually, the ruling was appealed, and during this time, Anjet became passionately religious. However, the Georgia Supreme Court would reject the appeal, and Anjet would be transferred to Reedsville State Prison for her execution. After spending time on death row, Anjet would return to Macon, Georgia, and appear before the Board of Pardons and Paroles, where she not only accused Julia of killing Ben Jr., Joe, and then herself, but stated that her mother, Jetta Donovan, who had stood by Anjette throughout the ordeal, had killed her daughter Marcia. The Board of Pardons and Paroles asked Georgia Governor S. Ernest Vandiver to appoint a sanity commission. After examining the records and assessing Anjette, the commission deemed that she was insane and diagnosed her with chronic paranoid schizophrenia. By law, the state of Georgia could not execute a person that was declared insane. As such, Anjette was moved to Milledgeville State Hospital and was never found to be sane. She spent the next 20 years there until her death in 1977 at the age of 52. In a strange twist to the ending of this story, Anjette was buried beside two of her victims, her first husband, Ben Jr., and her daughter, Marcia. Want to share your thoughts about this episode? Head on over to our Instagram or Facebook page. The links are in the episode description. Thank you for joining me and letting me share this story with you. I will be back again soon with a brand new episode. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave that light on when you go to sleep. Bye.